Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Warning, Witch Hunt features strong content that may not be appropriate for all listeners. The information contained in this podcast is either general in nature or specific to the experiences of the individuals featured. It does not constitute legal advice. You should always seek advice from appropriately qualified people about your own rights and experiences. So the very first step is that you call the cops. And I called the cops had to speak to a person on the phone and give them all my personal details and then relay in quite a lot of detail the offending that I had experienced, which is obviously really unpleasant. You really have to psych yourself up for a phone call like that. The person, the cop on the other end of the line told me that as soon as someone from their CIB team, the criminal investigation branch, had the time and resources, they would get back to me. And I waited and nobody called. A little while later, I called the same number again because I have a very supportive family unit and knew the system and am an assertive young woman who doesn't mind making a problem of herself. And I called back and they had no record of my original complaint. And I had to go through that process on the phone again. And then I hung up and I just wondered how many other women who didn't have what I have, would never have called back. And that was the beginning of two years of the system allowing so many cracks to exist that as a complainant I could have fallen through that are completely unacceptable. Welcome to Witch Hunt, where we look at what comes after Me Too. I'm Gabrielle Jackson. I'm Steph Harmon. Today we're examining how effective the justice system is in dealing with sexual assault. And I think something that comes up again and again, Steph, is that people say, why didn't she go to police? Why didn't she report it through the proper channels? Yeah, so we just heard from Brie Lee. In her book, Eggshell Skull, she writes about how difficult it is to go to the police, how many barriers there are to reporting a rape or assault and how easy it is to slip through the cracks. She didn't hear back from the police. She called them back a second time, she says, because she's an assertive young woman and she's got a support network. Think about how many women aren't assertive like that? How many would be too afraid? How many don't have that support network? How many are reporting assaults of people they know in their family and don't have their family to rely on to help? And I think the the statistics tell a compelling picture of why women don't report or why they feel it's not worth it. So we know that the conviction rate for sexual assault cases in New South Wales is around 10%, and that's pretty consistent yeah. around the world. But we also know that only 20% of 
sexual assaults are actually reported. It's it's quite distressing to hear that as a woman. As a journalist, I, I find it really difficult as well. I've spent the last nine months looking into allegations of assaults and allegations of rapes by women of powerful men trying to get some of these stories up, and it's extremely difficult under defamation law. Our lawyers are very wary of us being sued, understandably, and what they want to see are police reports. They want to see that these victims have gone through the justice system before they've gone to journalists. And I know of a woman, um, she's not a friend, but she was a friend of a friend who actually did report it. She was raped by a colleague. She knew who it was. She went to the police the next morning when she woke up. She'd been drugged. She went straight to the police. Uh, It was referred for prosecution. And then the court case was delayed and delayed and delayed. Mm. The last I heard, she said she regretted ever going to the police. She hadn't been able to get on with her life. This man was still out there using, you know, expensive lawyers to put every delay tactic they could. And she said, I wouldn't recommend for another woman to do this. It would have been better for me and my mental health to move on. One of the reasons I think why women are so afraid of coming forward is because we just don't believe them when they do. The rates show that only about 3 to 5% of these reports of rape are not true. That's a tiny, tiny proportion when we're talking about the numbers we're talking about. But people still don't believe them. And that 3 to 5%, Steph, isn't that lower than the false reporting in other crimes? Yeah, like robbery and car break-ins. Incorrect reporting for those are much higher, but people still find it really difficult to believe women when so few of them lie about things like this. So what we know is women who are assaulted, women who are raped, are very unlikely to go to the police for a multitude of reasons. And in this podcast episode, we're going to find out exactly why that is. Bree Lee's case is a really clear example of how difficult the justice system is for women who are reporting rape and sexual assault. It was even difficult for her, even though she had worked in the court system as a judge's associate. She knew the system. And it was still so hard. So then the next stage was going into the station to make my first official complaint. There were no women detectives available. So I had to go into a small room with two men. One of them literally dropped, like clunked a box of tissues on the table in front of me when we walked into the room. And it was like, that was the beginning. It was like, oh, yeah, we've got a crier on our hands, you know. Um, One of them told me, use the phrase, oh, so not rape then, just a sexual assault. Oh, well, you know what I mean. And... I had to detail the offending to those two officers in that room. Um, And then what I didn't realise is that I just told them, and it takes ages and it's terrifying and an awful process to just tell these two strangers all the stuff that's happened to you. And then I had to go upstairs and do it all again whilst the officer typed up my official statement really slowly in excruciating detail because he couldn't touch type and was not familiar with the formatting of the Word document. And it it's like all of these little things make it so much more awful than it needs to be. And then I went back the following week and I did what is called a pretext phone call, which is super scary, um, which is where... You call the person you've accused of offending against you and you know, but they don't know, that the call is being recorded by the police. And on that pretext phone call, 
There's not a huge amount of detail in it, but he says he apologises for the offending. He says that he was offended against himself and that he thinks that's why he, you know, continued the cycle of abuse. And he says that I wasn't the only one. He did it too. And then after that, he lawyered up and got a solicitor and a barrister and put me through hell for two years, even though he's on the phone saying, sorry, you weren't the only one. Every step of the process that could have been delayed was. Every low-ball bullshit manoeuvre the defence team could have pulled, they did. And one of the reasons, I believe, that that process took as long as it did was because if a defendant has the money to hire a good team, the police and then the prosecutors do not have the money or the resources and the training to fight it at the same level that the defence team can fight it. The main reason that defence want to prolong it is because they know how awful it is for a complainant to be waiting and to go through that process. And the longer they can drag it out, the more likely they are to shake you off their tail. And so it might not even get to trial and it all goes away and the complainant is re-traumatised and feels like a piece of shit and they've won without even having to plead in front of a jury. And the fact that we know that that happens and that there is such a high attrition rate at every step of the process and yet we allow those delays is inexcusable. Bree's case eventually led to a conviction, but we know that she's in the minority. Not only are conviction rates for sexual assault much lower than rates for other crimes, but less than 20% of women who are sexually assaulted even go through with the first step, contacting the police. We have three main reasons that people don't report the violence they've experienced. Karen Willis has been working with domestic abuse and sexual assault victims for over 40 years. She's the Chief Executive Officer at Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia. The first is certainly the myth, so beliefs that um, the victim did something wrong. And, and if we think about it, each of us, we hear somebody say, I've been sexually assaulted. And the first thing we want to know is where they were, what they were doing. Had they been drinking? How they were behaving? What were they wearing? Had they taken drugs? Um, had they had sex before? Did they have sex with that person before? And, um, you know, did they say no? Because the average sex offender really listens to that. 20 questions before we even consider that we're going to believe this person is telling us that they've experienced a serious act of violence. In no other crime will we even come close to treating the victim in such a way. The second key reason that people don't report is the relationship with the offender. So often we have this idea of sexual assaults being um, someone hiding in the dark, jumping out from behind a tree. Uh, that sort of stranger danger stuff equals about 1% of the violence that women experience. Overwhelmingly, and in fact in 70% of circumstances, the offender is a family member, a close family friend, or someone the person goes to school or work with. The other 30% are people uh, that are met on a social, in a social situation or that someone goes out on a date with. So a stranger, the only, and I put in massive inverted commas, relationship that the person has with them is the act of violence and again I'll put easy in a massive inverted commas so it's slightly easier to make that report um, than it is to report your father or the father of your children or your boss at work or someone that you're going to have to go and sit next to in school or uni next week. 
When it's someone that we know, it's there's a whole range of other complicating factors. And sometimes people make the decision, it's just easier not to say anything because of the ruptures that a report will cause. And then of course the third reason that people don't report is fear of the criminal justice process. A minimum experience would be two years, um, even just the first statement to police, an average of eight hours for one offender, one offence. Um, and then where police are able to identify the offender and question the, the offender, there might be subsequent interviews post that. You've got any number of lower, uh, lower level court hearings and committal trials and then off to um, whatever the middle level of court is in the state or territory they're making a report in. Um, in one, one matter, this was a few years ago, there was backup forensic, there was witnesses, there was just, it was one of those, there is no question but what she is saying is true. And even in that matter, she still underwent three days of cross-examination by two lawyers and a barrister. And the third question was, you're a liar, aren't you? And on it went from there. I mean, the court environment for anyone, uh, whether they've been traumatised or not, is an alien environment. It's imposing, it's large, it's, there's all sorts of strangers there. Dr Anne Cousins is a Professor of Law and Criminology at the University of New South Wales. She's an expert on legal reform in the area of sexual assault. It's not a comfortable environment in which for any person to be in. That really struck me. Um, is that that was my arena. I'd worked in that exact building. I knew what all those jobs were and it was still so awful, so scary. I don't know how we expect people who are unfamiliar with that environment to go through that. Yeah, and people are wearing strange clothes. Yeah. And wigs from um, the 1600s. And they can yell at you. Mm. They can. You can be yelled at during well, cross-examination. It's state-sanctioned bullying. Yeah. That's what it is. And it's, that's a really good example of when the right judge will not allow it and will mm. set the tone of the courtroom before it even occurs, let alone a judge who would hear voices being raised and reel it in. But some, not all judges are the same. An adversarial trial isn't about the truth. It can't be because it's adversarial. The adversarial trial was originally a way of quite easily getting convictions for the Crown. And then over time, because of that huge imbalance between king and defendant, the adversarial trial has changed and introduced a whole lot of protections for the accused, quite rightly. But along the way, those restrictions have also imposed major problems for prosecuting particular types of trials. There there are many commentators that have said adversarial trials can't be about finding the truth because we exclude so much evidence. We exclude a whole lot of relevant evidence in, in the interests of a fair trial to the accused, but highly relevant evidence. Previous convictions, for example, juries always find previous convictions or previous allegations or even previous charges um, around, you know, similar behaviour, that's always relevant. But a lot of that is excluded. 
there will be trials that are conducted where there are other victims of a particular crime, but the complainant, for example, isn't allowed to talk about those victims. So you, how can you arrive at the truth when, when the evidence that is sent to the jury is partial? So what's the adversarial system for? Uh, um, oh dear, it is, it's all historical. Why do we have adversarial and most of Europe has, has inquisitorial systems? It's entirely historical. It's just a quirk of history. I guess the main thing is that you learn about the, the theory and about rules and regulations. And then in practice, you see the loopholes. So, for example, we know now in Australia that a defence barrister is not allowed to cross-examine a complainant about basically her promiscuity, you know, a previous sexual partners, unless it's uniquely, specifically relevant. But then what I saw was a defence barrister, unfortunately, very skillfully cross-examine a woman to determine that she was on the contraceptive pill but didn't have a long-term boyfriend. So basically all of these weird little ways that you can get around the rules Um, and just the patterns that are insultingly mundane in the vast majority of child sex matters in particular, it's almost always mum's new boyfriend or the stepfather figure. Um, Definitely is always an older man with a younger woman or boy, but mostly younger women. And he's a trusted member of the family or extended friendship circle. Very, very frustrating that juries are much more likely to convict for sex offences when um, the complainant has physical injuries, but ironically the vast majority of offences occur without the use of a weapon because a weapon isn't needed because these complainants are terrified. Rape myths are so hard to fight and because at the end of the day counsel are trying to convince a panel of 12 members of the public, narratives that people think rapes follow have a big effect. It's easier to get a conviction if you have a physical injury. It's also way easier to get a conviction if the defendant is a stranger. It's also easier to get a conviction if the defendant is a man of colour. And it's because we have these, these myths and these narratives that we think a rapist is a stranger who's probably a man of colour who jumps out of the bushes and hurts you while he's doing it. And it's just not the case at all. And people are so afraid of giving a defendant a rape conviction. That's a really, really big deal. Um, And it is a big deal. But they just feel uncomfortable doing it unless it fits one of these stories that they are ready to accept. I think it's a failure of our justice system that we don't have the requirement for juries to give reasons because their decisions are unexaminable and and they aren't accountable for what they do. Juries, their reasons can be highly variable. So you can have, say, 10 juries that make the same decision, that is an acquittal or a guilty verdict, but they can arrive at that decision in different ways. You'll get jurors sitting in the courtroom expecting to see CCTV footage. They want, um, you know, DNA. They want blood samples. They want medical evidence yeah. as well. They, what they sort of consider to be 
hard evidence as distinct from somehow the soft evidence of the complainant's testimony. Yeah, but most cases don't involve any forensic evidence. Absolutely. And you know, the majority of cases do not. None. And it's a huge problem because overwhelmingly these offences happen in a domestic setting. How are you supposed to have CCTV footage of that? They happen without the use of a weapon, so almost always no physical injury going alongside it. It's just really frustratingly ironic. It's like the standard case is the opposite of what jurors really want to hear and see. That's true. There are some people who think we should have judge-only trials in, in sexual assault cases. It's not necessarily that judges would be better at making decisions, but at least we would get a set of reasons about why the decision was made. It'd be a much more open and accountable system. One of the problems that gets mentioned again and again is the justice system's ability to understand responses to trauma. For example, the system expects a clear story retold chronologically to the police and courts, but a trauma response can lead to honest testimony being characterised as inconsistent. People who are traumatised will not necessarily act in rational ways because they're traumatised. It's <laughs> off their face with fear and anger and shame and, and confusion and they're not eating and they're not sleeping and they're having nightmares and they're having flashbacks and all sorts of other things are going on. So they're, not, they're no longer capable for that period of time of acting as you might expect a rational person to act. And so that is often used against complainants in the court process, whereas in fact I would argue that's evidence that they have experienced trauma. So how do we change the system so that it treats sexual assault matters fairly? It's very much a cultural change. I mean, courts are just mini-cultures. They're comprised of people. They change from day to day because if you have a jury, you've got different jurors hearing different cases, but they are in essence cultural and they, everyone in that room brings to that room all of their cultural baggage. In order to improve the culture, you need leadership within the courtroom and that leadership uh, really can only come from the judge. But you can't count on judges to be a positive force for good unless they are educated. And, and the issues surrounding sexual assault, it's not knowledge that the everyday person knows about. You know, this is specialist knowledge. Psychiatrists and psychologists and other researchers have spent decades carrying out empirical research to prove X, if you know what I mean. So we, you can't expect everyday lawyers, and I'm a lawyer, lawyers aren't educated. Um, in these matters. Same with prosecutors. Lawyers are good for lawyering, but they're not good in dealing with matters that affect the mental and psychological development of complainants. Now, we could have expert evidence being given to try and educate juries um, but experts aren't frequently called. They cost money, for example. So it's much better to put all the money that you have into training a specialist group of judges and prosecutors and changing some of the rules around how witnesses and complainants are treated. 
So I think it's a major cultural change. Whether that that's my experience from doing a, a study tour of the New York sex offences courts. In the United States in 2006, the state of New York set up specialist courts for sex offences. They had a dedicated judge who saw all the cases and they trained staff with the latest research and best practice recommendations. They got those courts as a result of profound cultural change. And it, it had to be political. It came from the relevant politicians at a particular time. And the cultural change came when all the stakeholders around the issue of sexual assault, and we're talking about police, prosecutors, defence, um, sexual assault counsellors, all coming together and spending six months or a year designing a court system that would work for their particular jurisdiction. So it's not a short-term fix, but it needs political goodwill. We need to have specialist laws. This is a specialist crime. There is no other crime that's even vaguely similar to a crime of sexual assault. So it needs to be, we need to start at the beginning and re-look at how this is done. Now, I'm not suggesting uh, that we should be hanging people out to drive. Someone's been charged with a serious offence. Of course they must have the right to defend themselves. No question there at all. But we need to do that in a way that firstly understands the trauma impacts of such violence. So when um, someone who's experienced that violence acts in certain ways, we can say this is consistent with trauma. The other thing that we need to absolutely bring into the court processes is that evidence about what we know um, offenders will and won't do. There's lots of research, like quite robust research out there, showing us the behaviours of sex offenders, how they groom how they excuse what they do before, during and after. And that evidence also needs to be available in court. What we do at the moment is just look at the offence, nothing else. Whoop, just what happened in that five seconds or five minutes or whatever. Um, not at the whole process over a period of time. We absolutely need to include any previous sexual assault history of the offender. It is crazy not to do that because we know that most sex offenders will offend over a lifetime. It's very rare that you have a highly ethical, caring human being, all of a sudden they commit an appalling act of violence and then they go back to being a highly ethical, caring human being. Uh, it is a small group of men who use this violence, but unfortunately they're quite prolific. So... Again, the research is very clear around that, so we need to include that in the court processes. We need to have uh, cross-examination um, systems that seek to examine the evidence, not undermine and humiliate the complainant as a way of saying, oh, well, that person's unreliable, therefore shouldn't be believed. That is an appalling way to treat someone and not the way to get to uh, the truth of what occurred. So... They're quite different models. I also think we need to seriously think about the beyond reasonable doubt onus of proof about how we treat that in the court systems. And it might be that we, we continue to have for a criminal conviction 
uh, beyond reasonable doubt, but we might also look at a um, civil conviction of on the balance of probabilities, which means the person isn't a convicted sex offender, but on the balance of probabilities, they probably did it. And what that can allow us to do is then direct people into behaviour change programs. Because what happens at the moment is people will get a not guilty verdict and off they go and they will continue to offend. Uh, so let's let's say, okay, balance the probabilities that you're, uh, that somewhere over the next six, 12 months, you're going to offend again. To stop that person becoming our next client, let's track you into behaviour change and do something about your behaviours. But can change actually happen in this ancient system? And if so, how do we make it happen? When I first came into this industry 45 years ago, I was told that the only reason men hit their wives is because they're not very good lovers, mothers, cleaners, cooks, and if they picked up their game, then he wouldn't have to hit them. I was also told that men only turn to their children when um, their wives don't meet their needs. Now, I'm imagining that most of your listeners out there are going, you've got to be kidding me, because we've absolutely moved those attitudes, which is terrific. We don't hold those sorts of views anymore. So we, we can and do change the way we think and the way we do things. The greatest success is when you work with other people. You've got to be prepared to network and and, and, and form those long-term relationships to get change. Mm. With a district court judge in Queensland, I set up a national committee in, uh, I think it was the end of 1999, and we worked for 10 years. I mean, back in those days, Queensland had nothing, and now it has many of the innovations that, that Western Australia originally had. It was the first Australian jurisdiction to introduce things like giving it evidence from a remote room via CCTV. And it's so amazing to sit in this room with you where during that year as an associate, I saw so many complainants benefiting from their ability to give evidence via video link. Mm. And that is such a pragmatic, tangible outcome that makes a monumental difference in decreasing as much as possible that re-traumatisation. Yeah. It's huge. Anyway, you know, that's your job now to be advocating for these changes with politicians. Next time on Witch Hunt, we're examining why feminism sometimes leaves some people behind. The yielding that the society is doing is yielding to the point of acceptance. You know, all right, well, we will accept that you're different. We accept that you're different. Whereas we need to push past that towards pride. We need for ourselves and we need for our society to be proud of our difference because it's cool and it's interesting. Please subscribe to Witch Hunt wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a rating or review if you can. You can also find us on theguardian.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.